When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today, we have a very special guest for you. He's nicknamed the king of podcasting. It's Guy Raz, host of NPR's hit podcast, How I Built This. He's also the co-creator of the TED Radio Hour and his podcasts are listened to by over 14 million people every month. He joined us to discuss the exponential growth of the world of podcasting, as well as the world of entrepreneurship in the 21st century. It's a really fascinating conversation, and it was hosted by the author and research director, Carl Miller. And if you do enjoy it, please do tell your friends about this new Intelligence Squared podcast. But now, let's go to the episode. Increasingly, what we are seeing are consumers demanding that the brands they use take a stand on social and political issues, which I think is not surprising, given that, you know, it's a reflection of where our society is is sort of headed towards. Podcasting is radio. Radio is storytelling around the campfire. It's the same thing. It's just the way we're delivering it and packaging it. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Intelligence Squared Business with me, Carmela. Uh, I really am delighted to introduce our guest today, Guy Raz, one of the most popular podcasters in history. He is the co-creator and editorial director of three NPR programmes, including two of its most popular, TED Radio Hour and How I Built This. Uh, they're listened to by more than 14 million people every month, and now is the author of How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success, from the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs. Um, Guy, you were just as I heard you described by Tim Ferriss, no less, just a moment ago, as the Michael Phelps of podcasting. Uh, welcome back to your natural habitat, I suppose. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that was um, very generous of Tim Ferriss to write. And, you know, um, look, I'm very honored and obviously I appreciate these accolades, you know, the most popular this or the Michael Phelps of that. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a person writing words down on paper and ordering those words. And um, and then, you know, we all latch onto those words. You know, we, we read about, you know, other programs or people who are described in certain ways. And, and obviously, as I say, I'm, I'm very honored, but I try not to take it too seriously because, um, you know, popularity and success is a fleeting. And um, what might be, you know, what might be successful one day is disastrous and a failure the next day. And I, I try to take it in stride. Am I detecting a kind of hint of stoicism there about kind of Mistress Fortuna and the, 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 the twin, um, uh, the, the, the twin imposters of success and failure? I don't know if it's stoicism so much as the, like the genetic, um, material that runs through my my body which is like i come from eastern european jews so they were always running away from people trying to kill them so you know they'd be in the village and things would be going fine and then one day somebody would say hey they're coming to kill us we gotta leave and i think that that um genetic material flows through my my body and so somehow i i always think i'm i'm optimistic generally but i i'm always prepared for for disaster. <laughs> oh well, uh, me too. Actually, Eastern European Jew uh, by by descent as well. A shtetl outside of Warsaw, so uh, uh, also prepared for a disaster. I think. Yeah, isn't it interesting um, how uh, <laughs> you know, you never know what's around the corner with that kind of background. Um, Guy, uh, heroes' journeys. We're going to talk a lot about them um, over the next hour or so. Um, but let's begin. And sorry, one more accolade with your own hero's journey, if you will. Um, so 
you know, you've done a lot of things, haven't you? Um, and I, I just wonder whether you can tell us a bit about how you see your journey up to this point and all the different professional kind of um, kind of phases, really, that you've moved through in your life. Yeah, you know, I I always wanted to be a reporter. When I say always, I mean really from probably from my early teens. Um, I started writing for the student newspaper in, in, in middle school and high school, and um, I I loved being able to see stories that I wrote, you know, typeset and printed out. Um, and as I got to college, I did the same thing. And, and what I realized and what I, what I wanted to do with my life was to tell stories that would somehow create empathy and awareness and understanding. And it sounds very earnest, but I really was drawn to this idea that I could cover stories of conflict and that if I could do it right, maybe the warring factions would would be able to understand the other side a little bit better. I was really drawn to the Middle East. I wanted to cover Israel-Palestine. I really wanted to tell those stories. I wanted to cover stories in Kashmir. I wanted to cover the Balkans. I ended up covering all of those stories over the course of my my early career. Um, It's what I set out to do. I wanted to be overseas and I wanted to go to conflict zones and, um, you know, and and figure out ways to tell stories about different sides with empathy. Um, And I loved doing that. You know, I loved telling telling stories about villagers in, in Afghanistan or a family in, you know, in the West Bank or in Gaza or or, you know, a family in you know, a poor part of Israel or, or, or a person in, in, you know, in Pakistan or, or the Balkans. I mean, I spent lots of time in Kosovo and Macedonia. Um, what, I, what I kind of realized over my seven years overseas um, was that my intention wasn't really what, what was happening. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't seeing people, I wasn't seeing the work I was doing or the work all the reporters were doing um, as work that was bringing people together. In fact, uh, people seem to be becoming more and more polarized, not necessarily because of the work of reporters, just because people, I think, are naturally focused on confirming their own biases already, right? We we know that human beings um, are drawn to stories that tell them what they already believe. And over time, I, I felt that what I was doing in the news world wasn't I wasn't pursuing what I wanted to pursue as a news reporter. And so about 10 years ago, I made the decision to leave the news world, which is what I had done from 1997. I had done that my entire career. I'd covered the Iraq War and and the Afghan War and Israel-Palestine and the Balkans. And I loved, loved it, loved it so much. It was such a powerful experience. And it really helped me, I think, develop my own sense of empathy and also my, my storytelling abilities because I, I was never a great reporter. You know, I was never um you know like Lise Doucette, right, from the BBC or Christiane Amanpour and these great, great reporters. And I was never a great reporter in that way. I was never a great breaking news reporter or the kind of person who, you know, spent time really cultivating deep sources. I was always much more interested in just stories, um, stories of people. And that's what I was better at. And that's what I became better at over time. And so when I decided to leave the news world about 10 years ago and and enter into a completely different kind of journalism, that was a real, real kind of pivot for me personally because I was leaving behind this this world that I was so committed to that I wanted to be part of so much. And I went and, and helped create a program called the TED Radio Hour, which was a collaboration with TED and NPR, the, uh, the U.S. public radio network. And um, I wanted that show to be about what it means to be a human. Now, this, again, sounds very naive and and earnest, but the idea behind it was that we all, as a species, have these similar characteristics, traits, and experiences. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. We have the ability to collaborate, to be empathetic, to to think creatively. You know, these are... Themes and topics that have been described by Yuval Noah Harari and other thinkers and 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 um, philosophers, 
And I wanted to kind of focus on those experiences as, you know, what, what does it mean to be a human? Um, why do we have this ability to collaborate? Why do we have this ability to organize ourselves? What makes us different from every other species in the animal kingdom? And that really was when I start. That, that was an experience that helped me begin to see that the work I do could actually have an impact on people. You know, that show and the themes that we focused on that show really connected with people. Um, and it was a different kind of response and feedback that I that I had received, you know, compared to what I, I was getting when I was uh, covering wars and conflicts, when people were really angry and full of vitriol. The kind of feedback and the kind of response I was getting from listeners was like, wow, this is really powerful. Um, this has changed the way I see a part of the world. And so that really, that was really how my kind of journey into essentially podcasting began because I was a radio reporter my whole career and I kind of jumped out of it, out of the news world and out of the radio world about 10 years ago into this weird, strange universe called podcasting that nobody was <laughs> listening to, including me. Um, and that's kind of where I, I, I ended up. And that sort of takes us to where and what I'm doing now. I remember I was in front of um, Vint Cerf and James Crocker a few years ago, who basically invented the internet. Um, and I'll ask them, I feel in, in, a, in a way, really, that talking to you is, is quite a similar experience. Um, so I'll ask you the, kind of the same question I asked them, which is that if we could go back to the very early days of podcasting, did, did you know like that it was just going to become this new entirely new thing you know and it would become so unbelievably popular and there would just be this deluge of podcasts and deluge of listeners we or, or was that all a bit of a kind of surprise were you like no this is absolutely going to be the new way in which people consume this kind of thing it was a little bit of both i mean i think that the writing was has always been on the wall for any any evolving technology and radio terrestrial radio is is an, an evolving technology and eventually will become obsolete because people won't listen to terrestrial radio. They won't, I mean, yes, it'll exist, but you know, when, when you can get broadband service any, in any corner of the world, you, you know, and, and you can hear whatever you want on demand, wherever you are, obviously more and more people will migrate towards that. And that's really what has happened in, in developing countries where, where you have access to broadband everywhere um, people listen to the radio less and they listen to podcasting more. Um, I don't think I would have been able to anticipate the explosion and how it's become so commercialized and it's become, um, you know, a money-making um, pursuit, you know, because I, I, I've been in public media my whole career where the focus has been on mission and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and less on, on money um, and less on, um, you know, this kind of gold rush. But what I would say is that um, it's it really isn't a different technology, right? Like human beings have always basically been able to consume information in a few ways. We can see a still image. We can see a moving image. We can hear something. You know, we can taste something, touch something. I mean, if it was around campfires in the Neolithic era... And then it, you know, it became, you know, the wireless radio under, you know, when Marconi sent that transmission and, and the BBC and Lord Reith, you know, created this amazing entity and then, you know, and then television. And today it's, it's, it's still audio, right? It's, it's not any different. It's just the way it's delivered. So podcasting is radio. Radio is storytelling around the campfire. It's the same thing it's just the way we're delivering it and packaging it and i think um i think that's that's exciting i mean I, I i love that i love that the barrier to entry has essentially been eliminated anybody can go and start something and put something out there it doesn't mean that you're going to get you know millions of listeners but it does mean that you have the opportunity to put something out there and and to try and create something and i think that that's what makes podcasting so exciting um and and interesting and it's it's changed so much even even in the last year you know the pandemic has certainly seen an explosion in growth um and and something i would not have anticipated either cuz i thought that many people would have would have stopped listening because they weren't commuting they weren't sitting on on trains or in cars but to the contrary more and more people are listening to podcasting because people find themselves with more time to exercise and to take walks and even our shows 
have seen a huge growth in in listenership this year, and that's been so interesting to 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 see. For those entrepreneurs who are would be podcasters now, you know, and that barrier, to, you know, they can see that barrier to entry has just plummeted. They can do it. What advice would you give them now about kind of trying to break through all that noise? Um, are there kind of unutilized affordances of the genre? Do you think that they can? How do they do something new now that everyone is doing it? I think the thing to focus on is not about the money side. The reality is very, very few people make money in podcasting. There are 1 million plus podcasts in the English language, okay? You can fit the number of podcasts with more than 50,000 downloads a week. You can fit on the top of a pinhead. It is a tiny number of podcasts. It is a few hundred out of those millions. And, and, and the number of podcasts with a million or more downloads a week are even smaller. It's, it's fewer than 50 or 60, maybe, at most. It's a tiny, tiny number of podcasts. Very few people are making money or significant money from podcasting. And what I would say to people who want to start a podcast is don't go into it thinking that it's going to be the way you are going to make, make money. I, I would think of it rather as an engagement tool, a way to talk about an idea you have and eventually a way to talk about a book you have or a, or a product or service you offer or educational tool you offer. If you think about, let's say you have a podcast and you've got 500 people that listen to it. You have 500 downloads a week. And you might be thinking to yourself, God, I'm so disappointed. I only have 500 downloads a week or I only have 250 downloads a week. Well, then ask yourself this question. If you walked outside to a park, if you walked to speaker's corner at Hyde Park and you stood on top of a soapbox and you started talking about your ideas. Do you really think 250 people would gather around you? Probably not. So now think about your podcast again. You have 250 people. If you were asked to speak in front of 250 people, would you take that speaking offer? Most people would. That's a lot of people. So having 250 people who are actively engaged coming to your show every week or 500 people that's a lot of people, and those are the people who are going to buy your book or are going to talk about your book or are going to talk about your show or are going to be talking about you know, the consulting service you offer, whatever it might be. And so I, I always say think about your podcast as an engagement tool and really think about it as something you love and something that you love doing for the sake of doing it, not for the sake of trying to make money from it. And. In telling their stories, and I, I suppose both for the podcast guy and, and the book, what do you try and show to the to the reader or the listener? What are you trying to expose in 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 those stories? I'm trying to um, I'm trying to to show people that that these incredibly successful entrepreneurs, whether it's Richard Branson or Howard Schultz of Starbucks or Sarah Blakely of Spanx or the late Tony Shea of Zappos or any of these people that so many of us hear about, Joe Malone, you know, David Constantine who founded Lush, um, that they are actually really just like us, that they are not superheroes, that they're not, um, that we shouldn't put them on pedestals, that they have had moments where they have been lying on the bathroom floor in the fetal position crying, that they have anxiety, that they have sleepless nights, that they are not made of Teflon, that their journeys were really hard. And the reason why I want to tell that story is because I want people to see themselves in, in these people that so many of us admire and sometimes I think wrongly, um, you know, um, venerate. I want, I want people to understand that, you know, may, maybe you won't create a billion dollar company and that's actually not really the point. Um, and it's not, it's not what I'm trying to encourage people to think of. I'm trying to encourage people to, 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 to believe that they can put their ideas out into the world in some way. It may not be a $100 million company. It may not even be a million-dollar company. But it might just be something that enables somebody to pursue a sustainable life. Maybe it's a, a design company that they found or a website that they build or something. I, I'm trying to show people that putting your ideas out into the world is within reach. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be particularly, you know, creative or special or there, that doesn't, I don't believe that that exists. I don't believe that people are born 
with these gifts. I think that the ability to create something and to put yourself out there is a mindset. And that's what I'm trying to do through the stories I tell on the show through these amazing entrepreneurs. So does that mean you're telling hero stories actually to make them less like heroes to us, to actually make them more human? Yeah. And I think hero, I mean, heroes journeys, I think are human stories. I mean, we all have our heroes journeys. I mean, you think about like Ray and Star Wars or Harry Potter, right? I mean, um, you know, or anybody listening to this, like everybody has had incredibly challenging moments in their life. They've dealt with hardship. They've dealt with the death of people they love. They've dealt with major setbacks and failures, um, you know, jobs they didn't get, um, you know, companies or businesses that, that they that they may have tried to start that, that failed. Um, the, that's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show that that the idea of a hero's journey is not specific or unique just to these founders, but that we all, all of us have a story. All of us have our own journey. We are by nature the hero of our own story, right? That was That's what human consciousness is. We are constantly looking at, at the world through our own movie, which is, you know, our, our eyes are our own, our movie camera. And I'm trying to get inside the cockpit of you know Richard Branson's head, or or James Dyson's head, and 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 you know the founders of of Airbnb, or or whoever it is, and I'm trying to see the story from their perspective, um, and I'm trying to understand that person's worldview and and experience as fully and intimately and granularly, granular, granularly, in a granular way. Can't say that word today. Um, as possible, because I want, um, you know, I, I I don't want I want an unvarnished look at at how, you know, how how it happened, how how they made decisions and how they made mistakes and the setbacks they faced, and with the hope that people listening will see something of themselves in that person. Do you think Do you think that's why so many people, and I think particularly in America? But 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 across the world as well are so drawn to these stories in that there's a kind of tantalizing dualism there. Um, kind of on the one hand, these people, as you so artfully it kind of you know show in all these stories, are so like us in so many ways. But on the other, their lives are nothing like us now. You know that their wealth and success and fame are stratospherically distant from us, and that in a way that's a kind of reminder to people that that whatever their lives are like now, there's kind of, they, they have in them, in each of us, the characteristics or at least potential to, to, to radically change what our lives are really like. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. You know, I, I think that there's no question that, um, you know, there's, there's an expectation that a listener can have when they, when they hear an episode of How I Built This. You, you, you know from the outset that the person you're hearing succeeded. I mean, we're talking to Stuart Butterfield of Slack. Well, you know that Slack is a huge company that just sold to Salesforce. He was on the show two years ago. Or, you know, um, I might interview the, um, I recently interviewed the founder of a, a brand called The Lip Bar, which is a, a small lipstick brand based out of Detroit. Um, it's a black-owned business founded by a woman named Melissa Butler. It's still a small business, only, you know, only $7 million in revenue a year. Um, but it, it, it is a success. You know, she has five or six employees. It's a growing brand. Um, the idea really is to, you know, use these stories of people who are prominent as kind of, um, examples of, of, of possibility. And again, not, not the possibility of wealth or a certain lifestyle, um, but the possibility of, creating something that has an impact in some way on the world. And look, I focus mainly on consumer products and brands and brands and services that are consumer facing, you know, things that you can buy on the high street, um, services that my listeners, our listeners will recognize, whether it's Slack or Atlassian or Dropbox or Lush or Joe Malone or, you know, a Dyson vacuum or, um, you know, Marcia Kilgore's brands, you know, Bliss and, and Soap and Glory and, and Beauty Pie and others. I, I'm trying to 
it, you know, what I'm trying to do is to to say that these, you know, these stories and these experiences that these people have are, um, you know, are they are obviously unique to them, but they are also examples of you know, ways we can look at the world and ways we can think about our own creativity. And what I try to focus on with every person I interview is also isn't their success, right? Because success is not that interesting. We know that the person coming onto the show has succeeded. What I'm much more interested in is failure and the series of failures and setbacks that they faced and the bad decisions they made over time because that's really where we learn from them when we hear about the mistakes they made and the setbacks they had. And and my hope is that by hearing that, we can start to work through our own challenges and problems we're trying to solve in whatever capacity we find ourselves in. Because the show is not, it's not just for people who are starting their own businesses or have their own businesses. It's for people who work in big organizations and are trying to navigate, you know, internal politics or, are trying to change the way they their company operates or works. I mean, it's it's designed for people to think, you know, creatively whether they're working on their own or within a larger organizational structure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we will come back to success because I think there's much more to be to be discussed there. But before we do, Guy, let's just move over some of these kind of themes or lessons or characteristics that you you draw out across the book um, that, that 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 seem to kind of strongly come out in the stories that you tell. Um, the first one, and probably where we always begin, is the idea. Um, and you, you kind of wrote in the book a, a, a sentence which I love. The intersection of personal passion and problem solving is where good ideas are born and lasting businesses are built. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us a bit about that and and this kind of you know, this kind of eureka versus analytic problem solving kind of um, process where, you know, um, which which you kind of look at from from story to story. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every business starts um, in a different way. And ideas, we all have ideas, right? Like, I think that I think that anybody listening to this has had some idea at some point in their life. And probably some people have had an idea, and then saw that idea um, in a brand that you know that was on on the shelf of a store, you know, ten years later, and they thought I had that idea first. Um, ideas are um, they're not easy to come up with, but they are the easiest part of starting a business because ideas um, ideas only matter if they can be executed well. So, you know, some people the idea comes to them because they have identified a problem that they have and they want to solve it. Or they've identified a problem that not only that they have that they want to solve, but they realize that other people have that problem too. Some people, um, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about um, gaps in the marketplace. Eric Ryan, um, the founder of Method Soaps, which is a huge soap brand, he, he went on to found Ollie, which is a vitamin company, and Welly, which is a first aid kit company. He was working at a um, uh, an advertising agency in the Bay Area in the late 1990s, but he really wanted to start his own business. And he would literally walk through the aisles of supermarkets and just look at products and just look at them. You know, he would, he would do this for months and months until he 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 started to spend a lot more time in the cleaning supplies aisle, only to come to the the conclusion that the the sort of the natural organic products that were available, which at that time weren't that many in the late 90s, um, they weren't that good. They didn't actually clean that well, and they um, and as a result, the 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 marketplace hadn't yet fully developed for natural and organic cleaning products. So he came up with this idea, which would become Method Soaps, um, and it was a plant based, natural, and organic product. But that wasn't what they were advertising. They were advertising its efficacy, its its you know how well it cleaned, and also they were advertising the beauty of the product. They decided to make a beautiful bottle. They decided that they that instead of the hand soap that you kind of hide under the sink, they would make a bottle that was so beautiful you would actually um, leave that hand soap pump next to the sink. And 
that's where they put all their energy. Now, it was a natural and organic product, but that wasn't what their focus was on. And then, you know, there are other, um, you know, there are other uh, products and services that come about because people, you know, ran into a problem. Um, and they, 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 they wanted to improve on that problem. I mean, um, you know, you think of a, a, a brand like Away Suitcases. Um, I mean, Jen Rubio, the, the co-founder of that brand, um, she was at an airport with the same suitcase, and it fell apart at the airport. And that was the genesis of an idea that she started to really think about. You know, and, and, and she realized that there was a category, which was luggage, that that was not fully developed, where you could find an opening to create a whole new segment. It's the same story with a guy named Peter Rahal. He 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 was into CrossFit and ate a paleo diet, but he couldn't find an, an energy bar that you know he could eat after his his workouts because most energy bars at the time were made with grains or sugar or other products that he didn't eat. If you are on a paleo diet, you don't eat beans, you don't eat grains, you don't eat dairy, you don't eat any refined sugars. It's a very restricted diet. So he came up with an energy bar that was made from egg whites and dates and cashews, and he called it RX Bar. And that is how he created that product, um, which went on <laughs> to sell to, to, to a huge American um, cereal manufacturer called Kellogg's for you know $700 million dollars. Uh, eight or nine years later, but that was really the beginning. I mean, he identified a problem that he had, and he believed that other people had as well. And so that was the genesis of his idea, and really the genesis of so many ideas um, of the entrepreneurs that I've I've profiled. Do you have any advice, just just practically, whilst we stay with ideas, just one moment longer for for those kind of entrepreneurs where or proto-entrepreneurs, I should say, where there's a lightning bolt that's struck. They have a eureka moment. And when when they, they're in that moment where they kind of just have the idea, you know, and they have nothing else. They haven't got the network. They haven't got the product. They haven't got anything else. Because I think there's quite often, I see kind of moments of sh- huge vulnerability there where, where the entrepreneur is almost like paralyzed. Like as soon as they, you know, they, they, they don't know who they can tell. You know, but if they don't tell anyone, then nothing ever happens. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's this, um, you know, and it can come from anywhere, you know, and I, and usually it comes when you are searching for it. So, you know, you might be waiting in line for a coffee, and you might feel like something is 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 problematic about the experience. There's some inefficiency in the experience. Maybe the line is moving too slowly, or maybe, um, you know, the the way that the coffee shop has structured its you know, workflow isn't quite right. And some idea comes to you where you say, I can actually help them solve this idea, or I have some system or some product or service that can solve it. And when you, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you would go to the library and you would start to search out any information you could. But today, you know, we have this portal of infinite knowledge at our fingertips called a smartphone and obviously the internet. And that's obviously and almost always the first step now where you, you know, when you have an idea, you begin to kind of search out what it would take to kind of start the idea. Um, what, what I found with most every entrepreneur I've interviewed is that when they land on an idea that eventually they pursue, it's something that usually almost always consumes them. They cannot stop thinking about it. It it's something that they believe they have to bring out to the world, and they're so driven by that idea that it's almost impossible to stop them. You know, I interviewed um, interviewed the founder of a company called Walker and Sons. His name is Tristan Walker, and Tristan created a razor called the Bevel Razor, and the Bevel Razor is a single straight razor, right? For most many men who shave, if you look at your blade, it usually has four or five blades on it, right? And and right, and that shaves. It's designed to shave actually under your skin. It actually shaves so close that it goes under your skin, cuts the hair, and then you've got a very close shave. Well, that's really problematic if you have curly hair, and many black and brown men have curly hair, and as a result, when they use those razors 
their hair tends to grow back into the skin, and it creates this very painful skin um, condition called razor bumps. Many black and brown men, um, you know, experience this, and Tristan Walker, who's a black man, knew this was a problem. And he went to tons of investors, and he 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 laid out his vision for what he wanted to create, which was a a, a razor that would solve this problem, that would be designed for men with curly hair, mainly men of color. And look, the reality was he had a really hard time getting that money because most of the investors he was going to were white men who didn't couldn't understand why this was a problem because they hadn't experienced it. But you know, thirteen percent of the U.S. population is black, and you know, a, a growing and and soon to be majority percentage of the American population is our people of color. And Tristan Walker knew that this was a problem for millions of men and women who shave in the United States. By the way, he also knew that black consumers spend um, a disproportionately higher amount of, of their money on beauty products than any other ethnic group or racial group in the United States. But he had a very hard time getting people to see that. The, what kept Tristan Walker going and what eventually enabled him to start that business, which is now he, he eventually sold it to Procter & Gamble, but he is still the, the CEO, was this unshakable belief that this was a problem that needed to be solved and that if he couldn't solve it, nobody could solve it because he he fundamentally knew this was a problem that many people had and many people would welcome a solution to that problem. And that's what kept him going. That's That was what was driving him. That's what, what you know, was upset. he was obsessed with for months and months and months as he developed this idea and then began to design this blade and then eventually figured out how to bring it to market. Well, let's move from Tristan Walker's unshakable belief uh, guy to 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 Stuart Butterfield's I think very luckily shakable belief because because another of your characteristics is the lucky pivot or also the potential I suppose of being able to shed an idea for a better idea when that when that comes along. Um how important is that? So so it, it kind of feels on the one hand you know, we need to have unshakable belief sometimes, but on the other hand, we need to also actually be very, very willing to 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 be pragmatic in the face of what we're actually seeing. Yeah, I mean, and and the the real answer is there's no real way to know. There's no scientific formula. It's so much of it is is about in, intuition and about luck. You know, there are businesses that I have profiled. We have. I I just profiled of the founder of a brand called Kodiak Cakes. It is the second best-selling pancake mix in the United States. It's a $200 million company now. They make protein, protein-packed protein uh, pancake mix. Joel Clark, who started this company, struggled for 15 years. I mean, he, to the point where he opened a second new business selling cookies to try and fund the pancake business, the cookie business went under. It almost took the pancake business under. He bought a piece of property to see if that would be a good investment. He bought it before the property market collapsed in 2008. He almost lost everything. He took a job running a healthcare company to try to keep the pancake business going, constantly losing money. He took out his dad took out a mortgage, a second mortgage on his home to give Joel a loan. I mean, it's just an endless series of failures over 15 years. Anybody else would have dropped that idea. Somehow, Joel Clark didn't drop that idea. And it took him 15 years to come up with the idea of adding protein powder to the pancakes. And that was a game changer. Now, a lot of people, as I say, would have given up earlier, rightfully so, with with very good reason and focused on something else. Um, you know, I, I, I told the story of Stonyfield Yogurt. Um, Gary Hirschberg was hemorrhaging money for the first 10 years of that business. I mean, it was one disaster after another. You know, the cows wouldn't produce milk. The dairy... Um, all the equipment at the dairy broke down for six months. Another dairy kicked them out. Um, another dairy tried to basically buy them out um, and extort them. I mean, it was just one disaster after the next to make yogurt that nobody was buying. Well, eventually it became the best-selling organic yogurt brand in the country, but it took him 10 years. So it's very hard to know when to give up. In the case of Stuart Butterfield, his dream was to build a massive multiplayer online game like a League of Legends or World of Warcraft, these games that became very successful. And 
Stewart had raised considerable money to do this because he had previously started a, a, a company called Flickr, which was a photo sharing site that he had sold to Yahoo in the early 2000s. So he, he had a, a track record for success. So he was able to raise money to create a video game company, and it was going to be called Glitch. He, he recruited the best people from all over the country. They moved to the Bay Area with their families, um, and they worked on this game, and it was a beautiful game. It was like way ahead of its time. In 2010, it was, or 2011, it was just an incredible, beautiful game. They had a, a model where you would pay $70 a year. The problem is they is that when you create a massive multiplayer online game and not enough people come, it's not massive. And that's what happened. They couldn't attract enough users. As beautiful as it was, as amazing as it was, and, and the company was hemorrhaging money. And he realized that if he didn't shut this thing down soon, his investors would be wiped out. So he, he, he wanted to at least return some of the money to his, his investors. So he decided that he had to shut down the company and he had to let everybody go. And it was... he, he you know, described this as the hardest day of his professional life. He spent six weeks trying to um, place every person that he had laid off in other companies around the Bay Area, which he successfully did to his credit. Um, but as they were kind of sweeping out the office and trying to figure out the next the next step, a friend of his um, who had visited Stuart and knew about Glitch um, asked if he could borrow this internal messaging system that they had created for the product. It was a, a system that allowed the product developers and the software engineers and the sales reps and the editorial people and you know everybody to communicate internally. It was just something they invented for their own use. It was an afterthought. So Stuart said, sure, knock yourself out. Here it is. And within weeks, um, you know, in that grapevine world of Silicon Valley, people heard about this internal messaging system and wanted to use it. Well, long story short, that was the product. And he, he, Stuart realized that that actually was the product. It wasn't the video game. And the product became something they named Slack. Um, and, and so that was the pivot. He had to then reconstitute his team and focus on this entirely new product that was never intended to be a product. It was always intended to be an internal messaging system. And that became Slack. That became the best-selling, you know, one of the best-selling business software apps in history, recently sold to Salesforce for, you know, $27 billion. Um, so, you know, again, he it wasn't clear to him that it was right under his nose. It took a little bit of kind of connecting the dots and then realizing that that actually was the thing they should focus on and not the video game. And, and, and you know, that's the, the rest is history. <laughs> well, Guy, next, I'd, I'd like us to turn from entrepreneurs to entrepreneurialism um, and kind of discuss kind of w- what role that has really today and, and, and in all of our lives, whether we become entrepreneurs or not. Um, so, you know, all these people you've spoken about, um, in a way, they're kind of they're all brilliant problem solvers, of course. We've just discussed that. But do you think there are certain kinds of problem that this kind of consumer-facing, charismatic kind of force of personality-driven kind of change is actually good at solving? And do you think there are other kinds of problems that it's actually not very good at solving? Well, I would say, first of all, that not certainly not all the entrepreneurs I've interviewed are charismatic, you know, and I don't think charisma is a... Um, is a prerequisite. You know, I think a lot of people grow into their charisma also as they become more confident and as they become, you know, they become more practiced in what they do. Um, so I don't, I don't think that charisma is really necessarily a factor in the success of a, a product or a brand necessarily. But here's what I would say: Look, everybody, you know, everyone is solving a problem that is in, right in front of them. So, for example, you know, if it's the lip bar. Um, here's the problem that Melissa Butler was was trying to solve. She's a black woman. She felt that the beauty industry wasn't speaking to women like her, that they weren't marketing their products toward women like her, and that they weren't creating bold, bright, colorful lipsticks that she and her friends loved to wear. You know, fuchsia and green and gold and black lipsticks. So that's that's why she created this product. She wanted to create a brand that... What she felt 
spoke to women like her. Um, so that was the problem she was trying to solve. With, with with Andrea and Robin McBride, it's a similar story, but it was with wine. You know, they they are the lar- they they have the largest black owned wine business in America, and they believe that that wine, the wine industry, wasn't speaking to women of color, people of color, millennials, even women, and they wanted to create a brand that would would w- welcome all those folks in and say, you know, you can enjoy wine too, and it's great, and, and we're going to tell you all about it. And so that was the problem they're solving. And I think all of those problems are worthy problems to, to, to think about. You know, um, you know, Drew Houston created Dropbox because he the, the problem he was trying to solve was how do, you, how do you travel with your data without, you know, bringing a bunch of hard drives with you? How do you store all of your content and and you know seamlessly allow allow you to to seamlessly move it from one device to the next and that was the problem he was trying to solve what what's become more more interesting to me in recent years I'm certainly in the last year and and more I would say is this idea that entrepreneurship has the potential to solve bigger scale problems like world scale problems and i'm i'm particularly interested in entrepreneurs like pat brown the founder of impossible foods um pat brown was a stanford uh, biochemist he was a, a a really a brilliant researcher worked on cancer research um you know possibly would have won a nobel prize for the work he did on cervical cancer and hiv research in early in his career um he took a year sabbatical about 12 years ago and he spent that time thinking, what can I do? How can I use my knowledge to solve a real problem in the world? And obviously, he came. the problem he landed on was climate change. And he, he discovered at the time, which he didn't know, was that cons- the consumption of livestock um, accounts for 15% of global carbon emissions. So all of the animals that we eat around the world, that produces more ca- carbon emissions than all of the transport combined. And he, he really began to think about how he could solve this problem. He, he, he didn't believe that he could get people to stop eating meat. Pat is a lifelong vegan or, you know, he's been a vegan for most of his adult life. And he, he knew that he couldn't convince people to stop eating meat, especially in a developing world where more and more people are consuming more and more meat because they're, you know, becoming more and more prosperous and the middle class is growing. But he knew that with his biochemistry background, he could figure out how to engineer meat from plant-based products. He knew that there was a a protein called the loy the 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 soy the leg hemoglobin that was also found in the nodules of the root of a soy plant. The same protein found in animal muscle. That if you could isolate that protein from the soy plant nodule and replicate it, you could grow. You could create real meat. And he began to spend time on this problem. And it took him six or seven years, but eventually he created what is now known as Impossible Meat, Impossible, the Impossible Burger. Um, and the brand, the company is Impossible Foods. Look, the, the company is probably valued at $10 billion. Pat Brown couldn't care less about the money. He lives in the same three-bedroom condo that he's lived in with his wife since he became a professor at Stanford 40 years ago. He, you know, he's a, if you saw him, he wears, you know, um, clothing from discount retail stores. You know, he's a very unassuming guy, but he's taking a big swing. You know, he is really swinging for the fences here because he believes that if he can get more and more people to consume plant-based meats, plant-engineered meat, um, he could have a huge impact on carbon emissions. And that's the kind of big idea, big picture thinking that I think I wish and I hope more and more entrepreneurs begin to think about um, as as they as they think about the things that they can can change and affect. Well, Guy, let's for our last question, take one more world eating, all encompassing problem, um, polarization. Uh, now, one thing I took when reading your book, and, uh, you know, uh, p- please let me know if this the, I misinterpreted this, but it quite often seemed that the opportunity for the entrepreneur was to kind of carve out a, a previously underserved constituency and then kind of craft a product to answer that particular need that simply, you know, hadn't been answered to before or even recognised by big companies. Um, 
do, do, what is the potential, do you think, for entrepreneurism to kind of do the opposite of that? To actually begin to try and knit together constituencies that, that see far too much in how they're different from each other rather than how they might be in common. Do, 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 is there anything that you're seeing out there which can give us some optimism or hope uh, that, that that might be something we'd, we will see more risk taking and dynamism around in the, in the, you know, in the months and years ahead? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a very, very difficult and challenging moment, particularly in the United States. You know, I, I think if you look at a product, right, like, you know, like a, a vacuum cleaner or a wine bottle or, you know, a, a, a cosmetics brand, um, they are on the face of it, they're neutral, right? They are neutral products. You go to the store and you buy method soap or whatever it might be. But, you know, increasingly what we are seeing um, particularly in the United States, are consumers demanding that the brands they use take a stand on social and political issues, which I think is not surprising, um, given that you know it's a reflection of where our our society is is sort of headed towards. I think that you know the the reality of our of our situation, certainly in the United States, is is much more complex than we are able to discern at this moment. It's something that we'll be able to understand maybe in 50 or 100 years from now because so much of it isn't about the day-to-day quotidian political differences we have. They're about huge trends that are happening that we can't fully see yet, you know, income inequality, um, massive demographic shifts and changes, um, cultural changes that, um, you know, that that mean less to some people more to other people um that are you know people are some people are less comfortable with other people are are natively comfortable with it you know digital technology is something that i mean even i even look at my own kids and the way they consume you know youtube and mobile video games and it drives me crazy you know as a as a as a middle-aged young middle-aged young but middle-aged man you know my mid 40s where I think is that the life they want to live, and and I, I was thinking about this the other day when I was I was talking with my wife about it, and you know it occurred to us that we parents we raise our children and prepare them for the world that we actually struggled through or worked through, when in fact that's not what we need to prepare them for. We need to prepare them for the world that they are going to face, but, but we just don't know what that is. You know, it's a world that is going to be much more digital, um, and and much more complex than the one we, we live in today. Um, I think there was a vision 20 or 30 years ago that the internet and digital technology would bring us all together. It would make the world smaller and it would create deeper um, understanding. And quite the opposite has happened. Um, I think probably not to the surprise of some forward-thinking you know, observers and seers, but I think for many of us, it has been surprising. It's not, the outcome is not what we expected. And right now, it's very difficult to imagine a world where that polarization ends, but I believe it will happen. I mean, like any, any kind of cycle, um, you know, social cycle, we will see that change as well. But um, I'm afraid that we are, you know, certainly in, in the United States and probably in the UK and in other Western countries, we're looking at, uh, you know, certainly a few more years, sadly, of of, of po- political polarization, social polarization until, um, you know, until probably, you know, older generations pass on, um, move on, and, and, you know, the world is populated by more and more younger people. Well, Guy, thank you so much. Um, This has been Guy Raz and his wonderful new book is How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. If you did enjoy today's podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends if you like as well. Uh, I'm Carmilla and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business. Thanks so much.